You know, uh, the uh, text that we're in is John chapter 11. And uh, this is, I've been just reading through the scriptures real slow in my personal time. Um, Sometimes I'll rifle through the Bible and just go cover to cover quickly. But I've been in a very long, long, slow reading of the Bible um, for about seven years, something like that. Um, And I was... uh, I was uh, at John in John a few months ago. I'm in Acts now, but I was in John in this chapter in 11. And this passage just, it was one of those mornings where I was reading it and I was just like, whoa. And I saw something and I was just like, I need to dig into that a little bit more. And I also thought this would be a good thing for us to look at um, as a church. But, you know, we're always in series. We're, we're in series a lot. So like just a single Sunday, sometimes it's hard to figure out where it fits in there. And so we have a Sunday where we could fit something in. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. It gives me the chance to study this text a little bit more, which is fun, and, um, and give a word that I, I think uh, um, God wants us to hear at this point. Um, it's in his Bible, so of course he wants us to hear it. You know, but, um, This is John chapter 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 45. I believe, um, yeah, in verse 45. And this is directly after the, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, okay? And you remember, like, it's, what John does in, the, in his gospel is he, um, one of the things he does is he shows seven of Jesus' major public miracles. And this is the seventh one. And, of course, you know that anytime you see uh, a list of seven like that in Scripture, there's significance. This is culmination. This is fulfillment. That this is, you know, this is a moment where it's like it all led up to this moment. This is the climax, and this is it. Jesus' public ministry, this is the climax of it, of, of his, uh, the miraculous things he's doing is the resurrection of Lazarus. And each time that Jesus does some sort of uh, public miracle, there's a reaction from people. There's uh, a positive reaction from some who grow in faith because of the miracle, and there's a negative reaction from others who, uh, you know, feel threatened or something and have some negative reaction. What we're about to read now is uh, the reaction that people had right after the, the resurrection of Lazarus and how people responded. So this last of the, of the great public miracles that Jesus does um, before his crucifixion, um, we see the reaction to it here in verse 45, okay? Going down to 53. So I'll have you stand with me and honor God's word, please, as we read. I forgot to do that in first service. Those guys got off the hook today. Therefore, many of us, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's the man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. May God add rich blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat and join me in prayer again. And God, we just invoke your presence, invite your presence 
and say that uh, this is your word. You wrote it. You spoke through the prophets. You spoke through the apostles. And, and you got it down here in, in the word. And it's been translated from, from Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic into English. And we have all sorts of different translations of it. But this is your word that came from your mouth. And everything that comes out of your mouth won't return void. But it will accomplish exactly what it is that it intended to do. And so we believe in the power of your word. We believe that it's alive and it's active. And that you are the author. And that you are also the commentator who communicates into our life. And speaks the truth of it each day into our life as we engage it, God. So we ask that right now as we go after it together. That uh, we would not only know what is being said here historically, but we'd also know what it is that you're saying to us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when I was studying this passage, this is, uh, this is what caught me off guard. This is what got me, was that God's sovereignty is so unbelievable that he can speak through any person in any state at any time and, and to get done what it is that he wants to get done. I mean, this is kind of a simple thought. You know, we all know that God's sovereign, right? That he can do whatever he wants. But did you notice who prophesied here? Anybody catch who it was that prophesied in this story? His name is Caiaphas, and he's the high priest. When it comes to Jesus dying on the cross, there are a number of different people who are responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. The first person most responsible for Jesus' death on the cross is God. Okay, Because he decided that Jesus would die on our behalf. No one's putting God on a cross unless he lets them, right? And so the primary responsibility of Jesus dying on the cross is a responsibility of love, an act of love that God has. On the negative side, the negative responsibility, who's responsible for, for the injustice and for the crucifixion of our Lord? Well, primarily we all are, right? And, and the, you know, every one of us has evil in our hearts. There is none righteous, no, not one. Given this, if we were the only one living on earth, we would have crucified Jesus. That's how it works. And unless, you know, we got to get, we got to come to terms with that. We just got to come to terms with the fact that we are all that person. You know, that's what we are at the core of it. We wrap it nice and it looks nice, but we are selfish people. And when it comes to Jesus or us, we tend to choose us, you know, and uh, even if he's God and that. So we are responsible for Jesus' death. Now, when it comes to the story in that time, time frame, who's responsible? Well, there's a bunch of people responsible, right? I mean, Judas is responsible. Pontius Pilate, who didn't do anything. Judas hands him over. Pontius Pilate didn't do anything about it. You have Roman soldiers who actually nailed him to a cross. But if there's one person who would be the, 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 have the, the primary political responsibility to putting Jesus to death, it would be Caiaphas. Okay, it'd be this ruling party. They're the ones who instigated the whole thing, who tried to get it going. And the leader among them is Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, and so this guy is the one most centrally responsible for the death of our Lord. Okay, and God, in this moment, when they make the decision to finally go after Jesus and kill him, what happens in the middle of it except that he prophesies, which is just unbelievable, completely unwilling He's not trying to prophesy. He doesn't know he's prophesying. As a matter of fact, he's got a sneer on his face. The way this all works out is this. This is kind of like Congress, uh, the way that it worked for them. Sanhedrin is kind of like Congress. You have Pharisees and Sadducees, which is either Democrat and Republican or it's the House and the Senate. 
You know, it's kind of both. Like the one party has this group, the other party has this group, but they all come together in the Sanhedrin. Okay, and what's funny is someone goes and tells on Jesus for raising someone from the dead as if that was something bad. So they go and tell on Jesus to the Pharisees. The Pharisees go and squeal to the high priest, Caiaphas, who calls together the whole Sanhedrin to figure out what are we going to do about this guy who's raising people from the dead? Oh, no. You know, and so there's this big problem. They have to deal with this guy who's raising people from the dead. And even in the midst of their deliberations about what to do, there's this sneer, there's this bravado inside of Caiaphas who looks across to the Pharisees and he says this, he says, you know nothing, you know? And it just sounds just like politics still, you know? One, you know where we're at one looking at the other, you know nothing, you know? And there, he's, he's kind of sneering and he has this attitude and then he says, this is what you should know, that it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And he has absolutely no idea that the Spirit of God was prophesying through him. That's what John tells us right here. That, that he did not speak on his own, but he spoke as the high priest, prophesying that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation. And when I saw that and I read that, that the one who was primarily responsible for killing Jesus is also the one who God is prophetically speaking through in the moment. That's just a mind-boggling piece of irony right there. Isn't it? Isn't that amazing? And this is what I think we miss. This is, what, this is what's messed up about my faith is that I never take the time to just, I rarely take the time to just sit there and marvel and laugh at how amazing God is. I think if there's one responsibility that's more important than all the other responsibilities that I should have, it should be that I should take notice when God works and I should acknowledge it and I should praise him for it. You know, I always think I got to do God's work for him. And he does call me to be, you know, a co-creator, part, a, a participant in his work. But in the end, it's all about God, right? It's really all about God. And my primary job should be to observe what he's doing. And sometimes I wish that we could just forget everything else and just say, all I'm going to do is watch what God does and I'm going to praise him for it, you know, and just like enjoy it because God is unbelievable. His sovereignty is incredible. The way he works this thing out, he says exactly what he wants to say in this moment. And how does he say it? Through the guy who's going to be primarily responsible of putting to death his son, Jesus, which is just, it's deep, deep irony. And the irony goes on and on throughout this text. And that's what I want to take a little bit of time just to note some of the irony. First of all, you know, these leaders think that they're actually protecting the nation. Of course, it's, it's not primarily what they're concerned about. Um, obviously, there's a, they have vested interest in the nation being sustained. They have vested interest in the temple being sustained. What they don't realize is that Jesus, of course, is the one who is trying to save the nation. They say they're doing this to save the nation. Jesus is trying to save the nation and beyond. He's trying to save the world, and he will. Um, and, and, of course, there's, there's thick irony in that. The other thing is that Caiaphas believes he's saving the temple. In verse um, Uh, 48 here, it says, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If you have a different translation, that word place there might be translated temple because it can be translated both ways. And it's clearly when they're talking about the place, this is what they're talking about, their, their place of worship, okay? And so he thinks he's saving the temple by putting down Jesus because he's playing politics. And he knows what happens when there's a big surge of people following some guy who's a would-be king. Rome's going to come down and they're going to drop the hammer. And they've seen it happen before and it'll happen again. So this guy's playing politics. We're not going to let that happen. Okay? So we're going to save the temple. And the way they're going to save the temple is by murdering someone. Okay? And so they're going to save the temple by murdering, which is pretty deep irony. What's deeper irony is the fact 
that this person who they're murdering, how does he relate to the temple? According to Jesus, he is the temple, right? He says, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's saying, we're going to protect the temple by killing Jesus when what he's technically doing is killing the temple, you know? That's what he, and, and so the irony is, is again, just super thick in here. Caiaphas believes that um, it's worth having one person die um, and, and killing one person so that the whole nation can live. Is that what Jesus believes? Well, there's two answers to that. The first answer is clearly not because Jesus is the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do when he has one of his sheep missing? He leaves the 99 behind to go find the one, okay? And even when it looks like he's leaving 99 in peril and in danger, he believes in the value of every single life. No matter how small, no matter how old, he believes in the value of life, not to the point that it's worth just discarding because it's getting in the way, but in the sense that he is willing to even allow his whole flock to be in a very uncomfortable spot as he goes out and looks and searches for the one. Very different than the shepherd Caiaphas, the high priest, you know. And, uh, and, and so that, but that's the one answer. The other answer is, does Jesus believe that a one person, it's worth it for one person to die uh, so that the rest of the nation can thrive? And of course, the other answer is that, yes, he obviously does believe that. He has agreement with Caiaphas, given one caveat. And that's that so long as he is the one who's dying. You know, he'll give his own life on behalf of the nation. He never thinks it's worth it for him to sacrifice this person's life. You know what I mean? He's not trying to kill someone else and sacrifice someone else in order that the nation lives. If someone needs to die, he's going to be the one to die. You know, because he's not... And, and this is the way Jesus works as the great shepherd and the king. And uh, so another one other piece of irony here is um, that uh, Caiaphas this whole time... He believes that he's in charge. And this is kind of a little bit of the funny part of it. Like, I know that you can't really say that anything's funny when you're talking about the death of our Lord. But like, retrospectively, looking back and seeing God's sovereignty in this, there's a little bit of humor in understanding that like, Caiaphas this whole time thought that he was in control. And so he's like, put it this way, you know, he, my, his job is to protect the nation, protect the temple, and what he has to work with is his own relationships, his own talents, whatever it is that he has, and he's going to manipulate and leverage Rome and Jerusalem to get done what he needs to get done. And God would want him to protect the temple, so he's going to do whatever it takes to protect the temple. Of course, there's a whole other thing that's coming to him right now, but he has no imagination for it. He can't see it. He's stuck because all he can see is humanly. He's not thinking supernaturally. He's not thinking about God. He's only thinking about what he has. And so he's stuck in this human dependence mentality. So when Jesus comes in, he can't handle it. You know what I mean? He can't envision because Jesus is actually a disruption of the way he is trying to do this. And so he has to get rid of Jesus when Jesus is actually the answer to all the real problems, you know? But he can't, he can't see it and he can't imagine it. Now, this is the irony. This is what happens is in the middle of that, now all of a sudden, God decides that he's still going to use Caiaphas. And this is what's special, okay? Because Caiaphas is unwilling to receive God. He's unwilling to receive Jesus. He's the high priest of the nation of Israel. What is the job of the high priest? There's a couple jobs. To, primarily to pray to God, to go to God 
on behalf of the people. That's what a priest does. Goes to God on behalf of the people. God is standing here in front of him, and he's ordering that God be killed. You know, he's not, Jesus isn't physically standing there, but metaphorically, he's standing there, and he's ordering that Jesus be killed. So he's not going to God. He's rejecting God in this moment. But the job of the high priest is to go to God on behalf of the people. And one of the ways that he does that is through uh, offering up what? Sacrifice. So the high priest offers the sacrifice in order for us, for the people to have a relationship with God and to enter into the Holy of Holies. This is his job, is to enter into the relationship in the Holy of Holies, having sacrificed the lamb, now taking the blood and sprinkling it in the Holy of Holies so that there is blood atonement so that he can enter in and have relationship with the Holy God on behalf of his people. God is being brought to him. He's not recognizing God. He's wanting to kill God and get rid of God so that he can maintain the temple which is actually there for the presence of God, which he already has, but he's ignoring and denying and actually executing. Now, in the middle of that, God still says, I'm going to have him play the role of high priest and I'm going to have him do it in two ways. One is he's going to speak prophetically to the nation right now, even though he doesn't want to and he doesn't know that he is. He's going to speak prophetically because he says, it's good to kill this guy in order to save the nation. But what he's actually saying is we all need Jesus. That's what he's saying. And he doesn't know he's saying it, but that's what he's saying. And the prophetic word is being spoken out of his mouth because God is sovereign and he can speak however he wants, whenever he wants. And second thing is, is he's going to get the job done of the high priest through Caiaphas because even though Caiaphas is completely unwilling and insubmissive, what's he going to do? At the hand of Caiaphas, he's going to sacrifice the Lamb of God on behalf of our sins. It's just unbelievable that this guy would not fulfill his role willingly, and yet God has him do his job in a bizarre, backwards, twisted kind of way. God knows his heart and knows where he's at, and in his sovereignty still has him fulfill the role of high priest. Holy cow. God's incredible. You know? But it shouldn't surprise us because, I don't know about you, but... There's been tons of times in my life when God's spoken to me through very, very unlikely sources. I don't know about you. I, I mean, I've had times where I've had people screaming in my face who, uh, you know, want nothing to do with God, don't know God, have, you know, no relationship with God, just don't like me or hate me or whatever, screaming in my face. And yet, as I stop and reflect and look, I'm like, you know what? They were right, you know? God just spoke truth into my life through some of what they were saying you know, and their attitude was wrong and they might not be in the right place, but there's some of what they're saying that's absolutely right, you know. Have you ever been um, in, in, in one of those situations where you've been looking for God in the scriptures and you don't, you don't find him where you're looking for him in the scriptures, but then you find him in some other spot? I, Josh and I were trying to decide whether to come back to Parker Ford um, and do this replant, and I was really struggling with the idea of coming back home. You know, this is my home congregation, and Jesus warns about what it's like if, you know, you go back to your hometown. He had a tough time in Nazareth, you know? And I'm like, if Jesus wasn't working in Nazareth, there's no way it's going to work for me in Pottstown and at my home church. So I was really kind of worried about it. Um, but we were looking, we were uh, praying and discerning, and we were fasting and reading the word and looking for direction from the Lord. And uh, one night I was sitting there with my boys, and we were watching a film, a Disney film, and, uh, and just watching this animated film. And in the middle of it, there was a truth that was spoken of in the, through the storyline of, of this uh, film. And it was like God was just right there 
all of a sudden it fired in my mind. All the stuff came together and scriptures that I read started coming together and I started seeing his calling and I'm like, really? Through a Disney flick? That's how you're going to guide me? You know, I've been fasting and praying and studying the word and you're going to lead me through a Disney flick. And he's like, I'm going to lead you at home when you're hanging out with your kids. You know, like, ah, oh, that's cool, you know. But it's funny how he can just lead us anywhere. Now we actually make a practice of this. Um, you know, sometimes we'll sit down to watch a film and we'll, we'll pray with the boys beforehand and say, hey, when we're watching this film, uh, while we're watching this movie, try to figure out, like, is there Bible stuff in here? You know, is there, is, is there stuff that the Bible teaches that this movie's teaching? And then afterwards we'll discuss it. Is there stuff that this movie was teaching that the Bible doesn't teach or teaches against? And we'll process it together. Because, you know, we can learn from any place because God can communicate from wherever. He communicated from the mouth of his murderer. He prophesied. You know, he can communicate wherever. That doesn't mean that we have to run to Hollywood to hear from God. You know, we have the scriptures. And, and those, those who want to hear from God, you know, we dwell on those things that are lovely and pure and just. And, and, and yet, to those who are pure, what? All things are pure. To those who are pure, all things are pure. What that means is, is that as we have the right framework, as we are washed, as we are purified, then it means that as we look at the things of Hollywood, as we look at that person who's raging against us, as we look at that situation that's very difficult, as we look at that place at work that's just tough, no matter what it is, we have things to learn. We can find the goodness in it. We can find what it is that God communicates to us. And the reason is because to those who are pure, all things are pure. And how do we get pure? Well, Ultimately, yes, of course, from Jesus dying on the cross. But what's the continual purifying process? It's we are being washed in the water through the word. Okay, and so what that means is, is that if I am studying this thing inside and out, and I get up in the morning, and the first thing before I feed my belly, I feed my spirit, and I feed it with the word of God. And before I go to bed at night, I am sitting there talking with the Lord and nurturing, drinking of the water of life through having communication with the Holy Spirit as spirit and truth are working in my life. Now when I engage a film or engage a relationship that's difficult or talk to that person who has no relationship with God, might be a complete and total antagonist, you know? I can still find God in the middle of it because he's washed me and he's cleansed me and now I have the right frame of mind to not get hung up on all the filth and see all the filth, but instead see the goodness, see the truth and find the truth. And God can be found anywhere because there is gospel everywhere. Christ is all in all and he can be found anywhere on this earth if we have the right frame of mind to receive him. Excuse me. And, uh, you know, this should change the way we read the headlines, of course. It should change the way that we engage um, all, of, all of the things that we look at. And it, and it really shouldn't be surprising, I mean, when we look at how God does this through the Scripture. You remember the guys who traveled a far way to come worship Jesus when he was in the manger? Remember who those guys were, right? They were astrologers. You know, that's what they were. They were these, like, foreign, pagan astrologers. Yeah, they're half scientists, half kind of witchcraft, you know. Like, and yet Jesus reveals his star to these guys because they're watching. They're looking. Why not? He'll reveal it to them. Turns out they actually had the right heart. They responded to it, which is incredible. There's plenty of times when God speaks his truth through people who don't have the right heart, you know. I don't know about the Babylonian and Persian kings, 
who responded, you know, there's moments where they, they have some of the best praises in all of Scripture after they see like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or they see Daniel, or they see Nehemiah, and they see these guys and how they're moving, and Xerxes and Darius and Nebuchadnezzar and all these guys. They, they speak out these prophetic declarations of God's glory, which are awesome. If you go back and read them, they're like, man, we should be writing our praise songs from the Persian kings, you know, who didn't have a relationship with God. You know, and yet they speak out the truth because God can speak from anywhere. Remember Saul, King Saul, he's this is one of my favorite examples. There's a bunch of favorite examples, but one is like King Saul would just be like, he's chasing David, hating David, wanting to kill him, completely turning away from God. All of a sudden a band of prophets comes along and he starts prophesying. Just gets caught up singing and prophesying with him. It's like the Holy Spirit just grabbed him and he just starts all of a sudden prophesying. It's like, really? Like, why? That's so weird, you know? And, um, you know, there's, that's the, he was tormented by spirits, which is why David would play the harp, but then he would also prophesy. And there's this weird thing how God works in anything. He works in the dirt, you know? We're all dirt. <laughs> he works in any of us, you know? And, uh, and he works in those who are completely unwilling and insubmissive. You know, how about, the, how about the soldier at the foot of the cross after having just killed Jesus, you know? Just murdered Jesus. And then what does he say? Surely this was the Son of God, you know? Man, it comes from anywhere. God, and that does not speak to the profoundness of Persian kings or Roman soldiers or loony Israeli kings. It doesn't speak to any of that. It speaks to one thing, the profound sovereignty of our God. And he can speak through anyone or anything. As a matter of fact, we're told that if we don't declare the praises, what will? The rocks will cry out. That's like if you go up to Sanatoga to ringing rocks up there, you know, and they say that if you hit those rocks, they actually resonate a certain way, you know, and, you know, if there was an earthquake and those things all started pounding against each other, maybe we'd start singing Amazing Grace or something to, you know, hear the rocks uh, piping out Amazing Grace, who knows, you know, God in the scriptures, when people wouldn't sing out, he says the rocks will, and he even got a donkey too, like Shrek, remember that? Like he's the, the the prophet wouldn't do what God he wouldn't listen to God and, and there's a there's a an angel standing there with a flaming sword in front of the prophet blocking his way and he's beating his donkey because his donkey won't go through it and finally his donkey turns around and starts talking to him. That's a legit story. That's, that is not DreamWorks putting that together. That is the Bible that says that God will communicate however and whenever. And whatever he wants, and he will get it done because he's God. And we can choose to be a part of that or not. It doesn't really matter. We will be a part of it because he will get it done. And he'll use whoever, however. It's amazing how God does this. Now, there is that brings up this whole thing about, okay, so if God's sovereign and he's going to get done what he wants and he can just use Caiaphas to speak his truth, well then, you know, does that mean that God will ultimately why doesn't God just ultimately bring us all into heaven and bring us all into the right relationship with him? You know, and, and there was a book that was written, a controversial book that was written over a year ago now by a, a famous pastor out in Grand Rapids called Rob Bell. His name's Rob Bell, uh, pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church, and he wrote a book called Love Wins. And it was very controversial because uh, there's debate around whether or not the doctrine of universalism is in there, which uh, says that all people are going to end up in heaven because God... God always wins and God is love and so love will always win and love will therefore get everyone to turn their hearts and if God's sovereign then he can get everyone's heart to turn toward him and it'll get them all into heaven you know whether or not the book actually says that or not as there's debate about that however what I'll say is the scriptures do not teach that 
The scriptures do not teach that. That people do actually have choice. And we wouldn't be in the image of God if we didn't have choice. And there couldn't be real love unless we did have choice. And if God manipulated all of our choices and forced our hearts to do things, well, then it wouldn't actually be us choosing and it wouldn't actually be love. And so you can't love without having choice. So we do have choice. We don't have choice whether or not to be participants in his will. We are participants in his will whether we like it or not. He's going to get done what he gets done, and we are pawns on a chessboard, and there's nothing we can do about it. And we can think that we can get it all done, but we are less, we are less powerful compared to God than cattle are powerful compared to us, you know? Like, we cannot manipulate God. He wins, always. He does what he's going to do. He says what he's going to say. His word will not return void, and he will get it done. However, we do have a choice in our heart whether to turn toward him or turn away from him. But even if our hearts turn away from him, he can still use us and actually does. Now, what does that have to say about truth? This is what it has to say about this thing with Caiaphas and the truth, is that I can communicate truth. I can know truth and I can communicate truth. And it says absolutely nothing about my own validity in Jesus Christ. You realize that? I can understand the right doctrine and I can communicate the right doctrine. I can understand a passage of scripture better than anyone else. I can be, you know, Pastor Tim come up here and, and take apart a passage of scripture and enlighten us on it. That says absolutely nothing about my spiritual life. You realize that? It says nothing about how mature I am spiritually. Caiaphas spoke the most profound prophetic word of his time and he murdered Jesus. What we know and what we communicate does not validate our own spiritual maturity. Sometimes we think that if we have the right doctrine and can communicate that doctrine, that means we have a relationship with God. But that doesn't speak to our hearts. The scriptures don't say that you can know a person's heart but just by their doctrine. You know it by their life, by whether there's actually been transformation, whether or not God's in there doing his thing, you know? And what's interesting, you know, we, we really struggle to not take identity from, from our perspective. You know, if we're in this political party or this theological persuasion or we have this level of knowledge, it's really easy to gain confidence in those things. But none of those things should result in confidence. And there's that temptation to feel that. And the problem is, is that when we start to feel a level of confidence because of something we know or something we've accomplished or something we've said, it separates us from others. It puts us in competition with other people. Because what we're really doing is saying, I have it right and they don't. I'm validated. Or I accomplished this, which is pretty impressive when you look around. And so now, and, and, and it's separating us from other people. And what we read here in chapter, in, in verse 51, uh, it says, um, he did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Why? To bring them together and make them one. You see, what happens is, is when my sense of validity and my sense of, of identity is found in my corner of the truth, or in my ability to accomplish this thing, then I am defining myself individually, finding my justification and validation from what I know that someone else doesn't or what I've accomplished that someone else hasn't. And it doesn't put us in unity. It doesn't put us toward another person. It puts us against the other person. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is, this is what happens with Caiaphas. Let me explain how this happens with Caiaphas, okay? 
Caiaphas, it looks like he is, 2020, looking back at Caiaphas, we're like, this guy is so evil. He's evil incarnate. He is Adolf Hitler. He is, you know, all of that. And of course, he is. You know, like, there's this evilness about him that's so evil. But the thing is, is that it's not as clearly evil in the moment as it is to us now. And if we put ourselves in that situation and we think about this, Every nation that has an uprising against Rome gets crushed. He comes from a family of high priests. Annas, who's still alive, his father-in-law, was a high priest. Now Caiaphas is the high priest. He comes from a family of high priests, which means he better do a good job and toe the line if he wants to look good to the family. On his watch, there's no way that he's going to let Rome come in here and crush Jerusalem. Because what is his father-in-law going to think about him if this whole thing falls apart? As a matter of fact, the whole family business, everyone's wealth and position is going to crumble because this guy over here is doing these spectacular things, which while, yeah, are pretty impressive and all of that, it's only going to get us in trouble. And while he has some freak miraculous powers and everyone thinks he's great, what he doesn't realize is he's got to deal with Rome. And I'm the one who has to sit here and deal with Rome all day. You know, and this guy won't submit or play ball with us. He won't listen to us when we're telling him that there's things, you got to be careful about how you're doing that. He just keeps going rogue on us and doing his own thing. And soon enough, our whole nation's going to get obliterated. There's going to be a war and hundreds of us, thousands of us are probably going to die because of it. So what am I going to do? You got to get rid of the guy. Get rid of the guy. And while that's evil, you know, and it's still wrong and it's selfish and all of that, When you look at it from that light, you understand the reasoning, don't you? This isn't just, I hate this guy and I want to get rid of him. It isn't just purely, man, this guy's going to take my job. There's a whole lot of spinning parts here. And this guy's trying to make sense of it and take control of the situation with what it is that he has. I have these relationships. I have this position of power. I'm going to do my best to not fail my father-in-law and my nation and make sure that we take control the way we're supposed to. And he plays politics. But here's the problem is. The problem is, is the lack of imagination, the lack of humility, the fact that he couldn't actually see that God was providing something that was bigger than him. He thought he was in control. See, he stands in, front, in Mark chapter 15. There's this, like horrific moment where he communicates again. Caiaphas stands with the other high priests. Okay, there's the, the, it says the high priests stood before the, the, uh, the cross as Jesus is hanging there. And you know what they say? The high priest says they're standing in front of him. They say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down off the cross that we might believe in you. This is the same guy who just said that one has to die on behalf of the nation. And now he's actually mocking. This is why we know this is clearly evil. It is clearly evil. It's not like it wasn't evil, but it looks at times a little more clear from where we're standing. See, the thing was, is this guy had to oppose himself from this work of Jesus because it didn't fit into his paradigm. And because of that, he had to get arrogant, he had to use bravado, and he had sneer. He had sneer against the other political party. He had sneer against this guy who seemed to be doing great things. But now look at you. You're hanging on a Roman cross. And what does he say? You saved others, but you couldn't save yourself. Come down off the cross and we'll believe on you, which is a complete and total lie, isn't it? I mean, if Jesus came down off the cross, they would have got on their knees and they would have been afraid. There's no question. But they wouldn't have actually believed in him any more than they believed in the emperor of Rome. They would have played ball, 
But they weren't about submitting and honoring Jesus. He was about being in control of his life and seeing things in, with, with these eyes and with this mind. And whatever fit into there, that's how things worked. And he didn't have imagination to see beyond. And he was selfish, which is why it's tough because I'd like to see Caiaphas as clearly evil in the moment. And the reason I would like, let me tell you why I'd like to see him as clearly evil in the moment is because I don't want to admit that there's parts of Caiaphas in me. <laughs> you know? I want to control my life. I want it to be a good life. You know, I want, I want things to go well for my family. I want things to go well for the church here. But is there a danger in my heart of not listening to God in order to try to protect the church? You better believe there is. You know? What if someone comes in here who's just a headache to deal with? And I know it's going to wreak havoc on the community because, you know, as they come in, it's going to be really tough for everyone else. And what if that means that there's a bunch of people in the church who are going to be like, you know what? I don't even like going to church because I got to deal with that person at church, you know? And I got to deal with this and I got to deal with that. You know, it'd be very easy for me to not run after the one and just take care of the 99, you know? Because, you know what, it's going to be a whole lot easier if they just disappear anyway, you know? But is that the heart of Jesus, you know? And I want to do Caiaphas. You know, I want to do that. I want to be good at what I do. I want to take care of my family and my job, and I want to protect it. And lots of times the way I think it's, I'm tempted to think is that what I see with my mind, with these relationships, with the resources that we have, I got to do the best I can to make sure that things get done for the sake of the kingdom of God, instead of trusting that if we do things God's way, he will be the one to take care of what needs to be taken care of and leave the rest in his hands. You know, and it's really tough. See, Jesus is only received from a place of brokenness and need and humility. And when we're in charge of our life, and when we're like, I got this, and I, I'm going to dot the I and cross the T, and I got this, and then I try to plug Jesus into the side of it, it doesn't work. Jesus will not be related to as a genie. He will not be related to as just, you know, something that we add in, a plug-in that we add in. He will only be related to as king. That's it. So he, he has to be king, and that's the only way that he'll be related to. And so I have to be in a place of brokenness in order to truly receive Jesus. Caiaphas wasn't looking for a king. He had no imagination to believe that. I don't even think that he actually believed in God. He was the high priest, and he wasn't going to God on behalf of anything. I don't, I don't even know if he, like, in his heart, if you really probed his mind, I don't know if he actually even believed there was a God the way he was acting. And sometimes I find that true of myself, you know? I can be a pastor, but sometimes it's really easy to just act humanly. How do we fix this problem? How do we organize this? How do we take care of that? And all those things are very important to do our job. But sometimes I can miss the imagination. And I have a hard time because I want to serve all the other things that promise me goodness, that promise me life. You know, for Caiaphas, he was, if he had this position of power, then he was going to be happy. For some of us, you know, it could be workaholism. You know, if I just put in enough and I achieve enough, I'll feel good about myself. But God might be like, you know what? I'll meet you if you come home and hang out with your family and watch this movie with them. I'll meet you there. But I miss him because I'm serving a false God. Perhaps I'm really interested in what everyone else thinks about me. And so I spend my time nurturing the relationships with other people, trying to look good to them, spending my money on my self-improvement. When God says, sell all you have and give it to the poor and don't worry about spending all your time in that, spend your time with me, you know? And you can find me there. But I have a hard time letting go of the false God. 
Maybe I'm the intelligent one, but I got to get to the place where it's like, I got to let go of my own mental control. And even though I can't understand this, I have to step out and choose to walk in faith and just believe. Whatever it is, you know, we all have our, our stuff that we struggle with, you know. But in order to receive Jesus as king, we got to let go of control in our lives. And control is the idols, you know, that float around and they offer us. They say, hey, I'll give you this. You'll be happy. You'll be peace. You'll be, you can be proud. You can have your bravado. Maybe you don't have any special thing that's uniquely you. So you, here, you can self-medicate and you'll feel better, you know, whatever it is. But underneath all of that, Jesus is like, I got you and I love you. And I've died on the cross and I'm right here and I will wash you and I'll cleanse you and I'll give you all the identity in the world as a child of God. But he's got to be king. He's got to be king. And it comes from a place of brokenness, which is why the cross does have the ability to actually unify us. Because the only way that we receive the cross is from that place of brokenness and emptiness. And if I'm broken and if I'm empty, then I can't really look over at Mike here and stick my chest out and be like, yeah, I'm better than you. You know, I can't actually do that because I don't have what I need. I can't do that. I need the cross. And that's what we are as, pe- as a people following Christ primarily is we are not any better than anyone else in the world by being followers of Christ. We're the ones, hopefully, who are admitting that we are as broken as every other pe- person in this world. Every bit as messed up, that there is not one of us who is righteous. No, not one, as the scriptures say, that I am messed up. My heart is inclined toward evil and the only rescue out of it, I am selfish and the only rescue out of it is the blood of Jesus Christ, my King, my Savior, you know? And, and, and that's, that's the foundational unifying factor of the body of Christ is that we're all broken. None of us have anything to be proud of, you know? <laughs> only Jesus, he's our, prou- he's our pride. You know, and the second thing that unifies us about the cross is that it steals the power from the idols. Because whatever the workaholism or the image conscious thing or the control of my life or the material possessions that make me happy or any of those things that I serve, that I spend too much time on, it's all because I believe some lie that they'll give me something. But the power of the cross takes away the lie and it says, I already gave it to you. You don't need that stuff anymore. You already have peace. And when I'm in a place of peace now, I, I have the ability to love. And, and then oneness is a possibility. Okay, now listen, I want two takeaways from this message. Okay, here's the two takeaways. Number one, God is sovereign. He's in charge. He will always do what he wants to do and he will get it done through the craziest of ways sometimes. Honestly, just the craziest of ways. And if I can't believe that God's in control, then I have a hard time receiving what it is that he has for me in the moment. I don't know, if you're not on the blog yet, the Parker Ford Church blog, you need to sign up, get your email on there so that you get the blog post sent out to you. If you are, you received my blog post on Thursday morning, which was a part two of something that I had written in, uh, in uh, June. I've had a couple other blog posts since then, but I followed up on one from June, which is about like, where are we headed? It was the one we wrote in June. But then what I said was, is if we're, if we're looking to see where God's taking us, sometimes you have to look at the pattern of how he's done things in the past and it helps establish a pattern moving forward. And so the, the blog post was God's modus operandi for uh, Parker Ford Church. How has God worked through Parker Ford Church historically? You know, how, what has he done? And this is what God's done consistently at Parker Ford Church. He asks us to do things that don't make sense and are bigger than us. And we can't accomplish them. And then he accomplishes them once we realize we can't. And then he gets the glory. That's, God, that's number one, if you ask me, number one modus operandi of how God works at Parker Ford Church. A small little country church that God 
all of a sudden decides you should do this. You should build this building. You're not a growing congregation, but build this building. Ah, don't worry about the money. We'll take care of it, you know? And God just calls the church to do, you know, they're looking for the first full-time pastor in the existence, 175-year existence of the church or whatever. Instead, two pastors and a replant, you know? How are we going to afford that? God's going to take care of it. And he does. And it happened again this week. Um, This week, we got an email from Nancy Elliot Carter, um, which is awesome. She sent this email. You know, we've been trying to put this sign out front. We thought we were supposed to put a sign out front, like an electronic sign that can communicate what's going on to Coventry Glen and to anyone who's driving by and everything. But we've been having issues with the township. Like, we needed to get uh, the sign permit, but then we needed a variance for the sign permit because uh, there's something wrong about it or whatever. And we needed a building permit on top of that because there's a structure to support it. And all this stuff, you know, and we're just like, oh, my goodness, it's going to cost us all this money. Get, you had to get a lawyers to get it's just crazy all that stuff just to get a sign put up front which is already costing us a pretty penny you know that you know we're stepping out because we believe it's important or whatever well we just got you know we're praying about it and we're struggling through it and all of that well nancy sends out this email and says hey it all got taken care of the township just wrote and said don't worry about it, just build the thing you know and uh god worked through someone in the township who's visited this church before who's uh connected to this church before worked through them in the township to get this thing done <sighs> gone You know, it looked like it was so tough, but God's sovereign. So this is the thing about God's sovereignty. It should affect us in two ways. The first is that it should give us great faith. God's going to take care of it. If God can speak his truth through Caiaphas, man, he can get anything done. You know, he uses Pharaoh to get stuff done. He used our township to get stuff done. You know, and like, it's awesome. You know, it's it's great. God, God uses anyone in any way. And so what that means is is that when God calls us to stuff, we should have great faith that says, this isn't left up to me and my resources and my abilities. This isn't left up to just Parker Ford and our church and what gifts he's given us. This is about God. And he parts the Red Sea and he raises the dead. And Caiaphas has no imagination, even though Jesus right there just raised a guy from the dead, you know? But hopefully we can believe that God is sovereign through the story of Caiaphas. And believe that we can trust him. And step out into things that are beyond just what we're capable of. Because he's calling us to. I guarantee you that for each of us, he's calling us to stuff that's bigger than we can accomplish right now. And if all that we're trying to do is the things that we can accomplish, then our imaginations aren't big enough and we're not receiving the fullness of what Jesus has for us yet. And if our church is only thinking about what's already in our budget and what makes sense with the people we already have, then we're not thinking big enough yet. Because God's looking at something bigger. Because his glory is far beyond that. You know? And the second thing that God's sovereignty should do is give us a lot of hope in our times of difficulty because God's in charge. When I went and read that uh, Psalm 46 t- with Jim Holland the other day, Jim said, you know, when your wife wakes up in the middle of the night and she's non- or when you wake up in the middle of the night and your wife's non-responsive, he said it does something to you. It makes you realize real quick you're not in control. You know? And he's like, it's just a heavy reminder you're not in control. I'm like, man, how often do those reminders come? And when they do, they hit like a ton of bricks, you know? But the thing is, is that God is in control. He's our ever-present help in a time of need. And so what that means is, is in my time of difficulty, I might not be in control and I might not be able to fix everything around me and I might not be able to completely protect my family the way I want to and I might not be able to do everything I, I, I want to in order to do my job of protecting or caring or whatever. But God is in control and I cast my cares upon him because he cares for us and he's the sovereign one. And he cares. The one who's in control cares. 
Okay, so that was the first takeaway was the sovereignty. Second takeaway is this, is that we have a choice. We do have a choice. Despite God's sovereignty, we have a choice. And that's whether we will be unwilling participants like Caiaphas, because he's unwilling, but he's still a participant, or we can be willing, joyful, peaceful recipients of what it is that God's doing in the moment. Unwilling participants or joyful recipients, okay? So, because God's going to do what God's going to do and he's going to get it done. But I can either turn my heart toward him, trust him, submit to him, let him be king, do it his way. And whether this is comfortable or uncomfortable, I can take great joy in the fact that God's in charge and he's doing stuff that I don't know anything about right now. And he's asking me to do stuff that's bigger than I can do. And it seems like he's walking me through stuff that's more than I can handle. But he's promising that he's here. So I'm going to continue to submit to him and do what it is that he's asking me to do. And I'm going to trust him and I'm going to take a whole lot of rest and peace in the fact that he's in charge you know and that's being a recipient of what God's doing this is this is uh, 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 Stephen when he's being stoned in the middle of being stoned by people standing up and seeing the glory of God receiving the beauty of God welcoming him home in the midst of terrible circumstances terrible circumstances he's in the middle of being killed but he sees the glory of God because he's a willing recipient of God's sovereignty as opposed to being an unwilling participant like Caiaphas. And so God's in charge and that's awesome and it should give me hope and it should give me peace. And I have a choice whether to submit to that and enjoy that or whether to rail against it and serve all my false gods and spend my life chasing all sorts of dumb things that at the end of my life I'll regret that I wasted my time doing all of those things instead of just submitting to the king and letting him do his thing because he accomplished what he was going to either way and my life wasn't as fun and wasn't as enjoyable and wasn't as rich or meaningful because instead of submitting to his will and trying to figure out what does the word say and how can I be purified and how can I submit to that instead I was worrying about how to try to control my life and I was like Caiaphas missing all the moments of Jesus being right there. And oh yeah, he used me, but that didn't validate me at all. What validates me is the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed me and cleansed me and brought me into the Holy of Holies and said, I got you, I love you, I'm gonna take care of you. Just sit here and trust me as I do my best work. Enjoy it, receive it, celebrate it, worship. Let's pray.